0: Revelation chapter 8, and I think our first reference will be in Hebrews 10. Well, the whole theme of the book of Revelation is that the King is coming. The King is coming. And as we've been moving through the book of Revelation, we are now in this final section of Revelation where Jesus told John to write the things that will occur after these things, the things of the church. And we are in this seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation, the final week of Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks as it concerns the nation of Israel. And so as we see here that Jesus has opened the sixth seal. At the end of chapter 6, it ended with a global earthquake. The sky splits open to reveal heaven as the source of these recent calamities. But instead of repenting, the world hides and calls on their man, the Antichrist, to rescue them. But before we get to chapter 8, the opening of the seventh seal in chapter 7, the Lord, he seals 144,000 Jews to be protected from future judgments that would come for the world's stubbornness. And so chapter 8, now with that done, brings us to the opening of the final seal and even worse judgments upon this Christ-rejecting world. So chapter 8, we begin in verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, and he filled it with fire of the altar, and he cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. In verse 1, we see that Jesus opens this final seal of the scroll, and it results in silence in heaven for about the space of half an hour. When Jesus breaks this final seal, now the scroll is entirely open, and uh, the full contents of lamentation, mourning, and woe that Ezekiel saw when we first see it opened in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2 are now revealed to all of heaven. And as a result, it mentions here that there was, or there came to exist, silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. There had not been silence up to this point in heaven, uh, but now there is, is what it's explaining. There is now no praise, there is now no adoration, no one is talking, there are no explanations for John. And that is quite profound considering the amount of sound John has experienced since he entered heaven in Revelation chapter 4. There's been nothing but sound. There has been praise, there has been, you know, speaking, there has been declarations, there has been, you know, all sorts of noise going on. But now, all of a sudden, there comes to exist in Kevin this absolute silence. I don't know about you, but I get uncomfortable after about 20 seconds of silence, Um, with the one exception of when I enforce silence in my home because I have six children. That silence is wonderful. But normally that silence means I don't have to be silent. So silence tends to be an uncomfortable thing. It is a good indicator of the solemnness of this action of opening this final seal that John doesn't ask why there's silence. The implication is that he knows why there's silence. So that's the question then, why is there silence in heaven for an entire 30 minutes? Well, we can say with certainty that it is directly tied to the fact that all the seals are now open. There is a finality to this. It is now a commitment from Jesus, having opened this final seal, that he will finish what he has started, that he will not be deterred in any way by any man or angel who stands in his way. Men have resisted his calls to repent with the judgments that have been coming with the opening of these seals, and and Jesus will not be deterred. He will not be deterred, and he will not be stopped by any man or any angel. You know, I don't know about you, but there are moments in life when I am just done. Like, I'm ready. I'm, I mean, there are, those moments are much more the older I get, <laughs> where I am very ready. I'm always ready for the Lord to return. But there are those moments in life when you hear about something, you see about something, something so vile and so wicked that you're just like, God. Send Jesus now and end this mess. I remember when uh, me and Beverly were newly married, and uh, we would go over my folks' house pretty much every Sunday. We didn't have a Sunday night service, so after Sunday morning service, we'd go over there have lunch and watch football and stuff. And uh, I, I remember it was later on in the evening, and so the, the game was about to end, and they were kind of prepping you for the news that comes right after that. And, and you know, news flash, you know, and it came on and it, it told a story about parents or a parent who had placed their child in the oven as a means of discipline. Yeah. Yeah, I was undone at that point in time, and I thought, Lord, there's nothing here worth, worth, worth keeping things going like this. There are probably moments in your life when you have thought to yourself that were like that. You thought, Lord, now would be a good time to end the nonsense, end the evil, end the wickedness. And the promise of Jesus is that He will come and do that, that we will not be in this situation forever, that He will rescue us, He will rescue our whole world. And the commitment that Jesus makes when He breaks this seal, this final seal, is He's saying, I will not stop, I will not be deterred, not by angel or by man. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, it speaks of this awesomeness of the awfulness of God's judgment. In chapter 10, verse 30 of Hebrews, it says, for we know him that has said. In other words, uh, the idea here is we know what God's like. We've been taught in Scripture what God's like. And, And the way that we know that, now he quotes from a couple Scriptures where he says, vengeance belongs unto me. I will, King James says, recompense, which means repay. One of the things that we don't, usually like talking about, it uh, is God's vengeance, God's wrath, and God's justice. These are topics that we, we tend to avoid, we, or we, we tend to not try to dwell upon too much because, uh, number one, we're not appointed to wrath, thank God, uh, as believers, but, but number two, because it is a lot to grasp. It is a lot to take in. And yet the Bible teaches it, that vengeance belongs unto me, I will repay, says the Lord. And then the writer of Hebrews says, and again, so he's quoting another verse that teaches us what we know about God to be true. The Lord shall judge his people. When we look at scriptures, we understand that God will judge the world according to righteousness, according to truth. And so in verse 31, it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, a concept we don't like to think about very often, but it is a concept that is biblical. That word for fearful there, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's only used three times in Scripture, and all of them are references to God's judgment. But Hebrews 12, verse 21, of the three that this word is used, it is most interesting to me because it's from the perspective of someone who isn't going to be judged. It's from Moses' perspective, in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 21, the writer of Hebrews is referencing Moses' experience when God in all of his holiness, in all of his power, in all of his might came down on Mount Sinai. His very presence came on Mount Sinai. And Moses describes the experience by saying in verse 21, and so terrible was the sight. We don't use the word terrible the way that the King James writers used to use it. Uh, they would use it for awesome. Like when they would, if they were to see like, you know, the, the Statue of Liberty, if they were to have seen that, you know, and, and see how big it was and how interesting it was, they would go, wow, that's, that's terrible. But we, wouldn't, we would hear someone go, why is it terrible? It's awesome. But it means the same thing to them. So when it says you know, that it was so terrible. He's saying it was so awesome was the sight of of God's presence, God's power, God's holiness, God's justice and righteousness there on the mountain that Moses said, I exceedingly quake and fear. It's the same word, fearful. How does a created being, even one that's in, in right relationship with God, How does a created being respond when their Creator displays how different He is from us? How does a created being respond when their Creator, all of His righteousness, is brought to bear upon wickedness? I can tell you that probably one of the most sobering experiences I've ever had in my life is jury duty. Um, all three of the times I've had jury duty, um, they have picked me. For some reason, I think the prosecution thought that as a pastor, I would, I would like want to punish people. And so they've always picked me when I've gone in, when they find out I'm a pastor. And, uh, but it's been a very solemn thought that this group of people held this other person's life in our hands. You know, in the Old Testament, for example, in the book of, I want to say Deuteronomy, Might be Exodus. Actually, it's Exodus. And he describes the role of those who would be judges, those who would render verdicts in the nation of Israel. And he actually uses the word Elohim, the word for God, to describe them, because they in God's stead are determining what's going to happen to someone's life. So even in the solemnness of the decisions that that we might make in, in the role of a judge, you know, or a jury. How awesome is it, the idea, the concept of God? Not, not, not a group of people standing around trying to decide you know, what this person did and, and did it violate the law and should a, a punishment be given. But what would it be like to experience and see all of God's righteousness brought to bear upon wickedness? I'm pretty sure that whether you're a man or an angel, you just kind of stand in awe. And that's what Psalm 46 declares as we read it in our scripture reading this morning. But it's a verse that we're probably, at least we've heard if we're not super familiar with it, but it's, be still and know that I am God, Right? And normally when we think about that, you know, we think about don't worry, you know, don't, don't, you know, you need to stop worrying, you need to trust the Lord, you need to to be still, to stop, stop running around trying to do things, just be still and know that I'm God. And while I think that's a biblical concept, that is not the context of this, of this psalm. This psalm is all about wrath and all about judgment, it is the entirety of it, it. It talks about the things that we are describing in the book of Revelation. It talks about waters, you know, mountains shaking and, and, and the, earth, you know, uh, the earth being removed and mountains being carried in the midst of the sea. This is about the end times judgment that God is going to bring. In verse 8 of Psalm 46, it says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. For he makes wars to cease unto the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in the fire. The idea of be still and know that I am God, it comes from the concept of knowing that God is just and that he will judge the world. And therefore, I can let. You know, what did Paul say? Um, Vengeance is mine, I will pay, says the Lord. You know, let, let it, I gotta read it, I'll mess it up. It's in Romans 12, and it's just absolutely forsaken my mind what he says. But in Romans 12, he says this. Dearly beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. That's what I say. The give place unto wrath means step out of the way and let God do his thing. For vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The idea is, believers, when we see these things, our, our yearning and our longing is for God to take care of it not for us to take care of it because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God as much as we'd like to <laughs> at times. And so, can you imagine what it would be like in that day to actually see God bring righteous judgment? I dare say that we would all just be still and, and recognize that He is God. He said, I will be exalted among all the nations. I will be exalted in the earth because there is no one like him. Now, what is amazing to me is that this moment when Jesus opens the seventh seal and the Lord says, enough's enough, what's amazing to me is that that moment has not happened already, (laughs) that it doesn't happen sooner, that our perfect Lord who has every right to deal with our sin shows mercy and gives us space to repent. That we have finally gotten to this point in the book of Revelation, this point in history with humanity, it means there are no other options left. God has pled with us and pled with us and pled with us time and time and time again. And we have stubbornly rejected it. There are no options left. Only a fearful waiting for a fiery indignation. Now, at some point during these 30 minutes of silence, though, seven angels present themselves before the Lord. Because in verse 2, John says, and I saw the seven angels which stood, which actually means having taken their place before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. When it says "thus seven angels, it means this is a specific group who were chosen uh, and assigned this role at some point in the past. Um, the Jewish rabbis, they actually believe there are seven angels that are overseeing God's judgment and they give names to all of them. That's not in the Bible, so I'm not gonna try to, uh, I think it's fruitless to guess who these angels are, but we know that they're assigned to this task and they have, t- John sees them having taken their place and what he notices after the silence ends is that seven trumpets are given to these seven angels. Now the only other time in Scripture we see seven trumpets is in Joshua chapter 6, when the seven priests blow trumpets as they lead the nation of Israel around the walls of Jericho, right? Now, unlike the first and last trumpets that we see in Numbers that were responsible for getting Israel moving and telling Israel when they were to stop, these seven trumpets that the priests blew when they were marching around the walls of Jericho, they heralded wrath from God upon those who rejected His will that's what these seven trumpets were for. I bring this up because it is very common for some to try to find the rapture in one of these seven trumpets. That is not a biblical idea. The rapture of the church has nothing to do with judgment. It has nothing to do with wrath. It has to do with rescue. It has to do with motion. It has to do with starting and stopping. We have the start of the church in the day of Pentecost, and we have the end of the church with the rapture of the church. And so you have to acknowledge that whatever you believe about when the rapture is going to be, that that is what the purpose of it is. We have the start of the church and the end of the church. The two trumpets, the first and the last trump of numbers, those point to the rapture. But the seven trumpets of Joshua chapter 6 around Jericho, they do speak of judgment. They do speak of wrath. They do speak of God giving warning to these people that have stubbornly rejected his ways, that have persisted in their sin. And for seven days, he gives them an opportunity to repent. You ever wondered why the Lord marched around seven days? Why not just get it over with? Because there was still an opportunity for some to repent and be saved, for all to repent and be saved. And some were weren't they? Rahab and her family. But many did not. And so God's wrath was poured out upon them and the walls came crashing down. These seven trumpets, they are heralding an even greater wrath that God's going to bring on the earth than the seals brought for their rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, while they are getting prepared, they're not going to sound just yet, in verse 3, John says, he notices, another angel came and stood at the altar, or stood over the altar, having a golden censer. Now, the altar here that this angel is standing over is the altar of sacrifice. Um, there were two altars in the tabernacle that we, are, that we know about that God told Moses to make the tabernacle like a pattern of heaven. And so you have the altar of sacrifice that was outside the tent, the brass altar, and that's where the the animals would be, you know, placed as an offering to the Lord. When you would go into the tent, into the tabernacle proper, into the holy place, you would see the table of showbread on the right, the uh, golden menorah on the left, and then directly in front of you, right in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, you would see this golden altar, and it was the golden altar of incense. No blood offerings were ever placed upon the altar of incense, okay? The altar sacrifice, the brass altar, that's what it was for, sacrifices. But the altar, the golden altar, is where incense burned. In the tabernacle the priest would offer incense to symbolize the prayers of God's people coming before the Lord as the priest would come in and he'd bring the incense he would bring the prayers of the people lord I spoke with Bob today. And Bob, you know, his marriage is struggling. And he's not handling some of these things well. And he came and he brought his offering today because of his failures. And Lord, he has asked for prayer. He has asked for help. He needs your help to be the husband you want him to be. So Lord, I am interceding for him right now. Will you? And as the incense is going up, the idea is that God is hearing that prayer for Bob or that prayer for Bill or that prayer for Jane or that prayer for, you know, and whatever names you can come up with. But now, in this heavenly scene, it is not the shadow of a symbol anymore. We are seeing, and we're about to see, real prayers reach our heavenly Father's throne. And so it says here that he has this golden censer in his hand. That's what they would, the priest would carry the incense with. And it mentions there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it. They should add it with the prayers of the saints. Ascending up before God out of the angel's hand. So he has much incense, which implies that this offering of incense is alongside a large quantity of a certain kind of prayer. There are a large quantity of prayers from many believers that are now going to come before the Lord, that he is going to answer. And so. It says in verse 4 that the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints, it ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So he brings the censer and he pours it upon the, the golden altar. And as the prayers of the saints are going up before the Lord, this incense is going alongside of it and it reaches the throne of God and God responds in answer. You know, in 1 John chapter five, verses 14 and 15, I love this promise that we have from the Apostle John when he says, "And this is the confidence that we have in Him, in Christ, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions which we have desired or asked of Him." Listen, do you believe that God answers your prayers? He sure does he sure does. Can you imagine what it was like for John to see actual prayers come before the throne of God? I mean, that would have enhanced my prayer life a little bit, you know? You know, to know and watch and see, you know, and I, I was with someone who prayed that prayer, and it's, it's going up before the Lord right now. I mean, that was years ago when he prayed it, but, but here it is. It's being heard, and it's being answered. Now, what prayers are these that we're seeing here in Revelation 8-4? Well, it could be Matthew 6-10, you know, where we are taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that's an important prayer that all of us should be praying. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, your kingdom come. We don't want any other kingdoms here. We want yours, you know. That should be a prayer we're praying. So that could be what's being answered here. But I can tell you for sure because of what happens in verse 5 that I know for sure that it at least includes the prayers of not just Matthew 6.10, but for sure, Revelation 6.10. Because in Revelation 6.10, remember, we see the martyrs under the altar, and they cry out to the Lord their request. How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Lord, we've been crying out, we've been asking to avenge those who have violently killed us, to bring justice. And the angels told them, rest Wait a little while until the rest of your brethren are killed. Well, I know for sure that that prayer is being answered here because look at what happens in verse 5. It says, and the angel took the censer. Now it's empty. He dumped out all the incense and that smoke billowed up, rising before the throne of God. You know, I I can't prove it, but I was reading in Isaiah chapter 6, and remember it mentions in Isaiah chapter 6 that that smoke filled the temple? And I I thought to myself, I would never equated that with prayer in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, you know, and then he said that smoke filled the temple and the pillars shook. I, I don't know if that's prayer, but I wonder if, if there were people praying during that time, oh no, is dead, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? And then Isaiah has this vision of the Lord, and the Lord says, Isaiah, you guys have had your eyes on the king, you need to get your eyes back on me, back on me. I don't know if that was the, the prayers of people going, Lord, what are we going to do? And that was God's answer. I don't know, but maybe it was. For here we can know for sure in Revelation 8 that the Lord is answering this prayer and it says the angel took this empty censer that had, the incense had been dumped out and then he filled it with fire from the altar or from out of the altar. The word here fire means a pile or a heap of burning material. As John was watching the smoke go up, and I'm, I'm sure I would have been too fascinated by people's real prayers ascending up before the Father and him responding in an answer, he doesn't notice as this angel comes and he he begins to fill his censer with these fiery, these live coals from the altar of sacrifice again. And, and so at some point, because it's all in the, in the perfect tense, which means he had done these things, and he doesn't notice what's going on until the, he begins to dump them into the earth. So he sees the angel take the censer and, and fill it with these live coals, this burning material off the altar, and he throws it into the earth. You know, it's interesting, Isaiah chapter 6 mentions that vision that Isaiah had of the Lord. It mentions this altar, and it mentions that there were coals that burned beneath the altar of sacrifice in heaven. And and if you remember that story, an an angel actually takes one of those coals and uses it to purify Isaiah's lips. Remember, Isaiah says, "Woe unto me! I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and a man I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And I, in mine eyes, have seen the, the the Lord of glory." And the angel tells him, don't be afraid, you're you're cleansed. And he touches that live coal to his lips. But this angel, he fills his censer with a bunch of these coals, and there's no purifying going on. He dumps the coals, these live coals, onto the earth. And the resulting judgment, it says, and there were voices, noises or sounds, and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. The angel's action here of dumping these live coals upon the earth is that the angels of Revelation 7, verse 1, remember they were holding back the four winds of the earth, the next judgment that was coming, is that they now loose the four winds of the earth to wreak their havoc upon the earth. And because the earthquake here is very clearly literal, we should interpret the other events as literal too. Now, I talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago when we mentioned about these four winds and the noises and all these types of things. Um, if you've ever been through a hurricane in Florida, you understand that there are lots of noises, eerie noises that are going on uh, when that hurricane is, is going over you. It's, it's, it's very Freaky sounding. You know, I remember being in the hallway of our, of our house trying to be in the safest spot, most secure spot, and you just hear these eerie noises out there of, you know, tree trunks being ripped out of the ground, and it's just not anything you, you hear in, in normal life. And so when you have these noises, thunderings, lightnings, and then an earthquake, it leads me to conclude that these four winds of heaven being loosed create massive superstorms upon the earth in conjunction with a massive earthquake, a second one, and thus we see now two cataclysmic events at once. The U.S. Geological Survey website states that while there is no such thing as earthquake weather, major storm systems like typhoons and hurricanes are known to play a role in triggering some damaging earthquakes, and it would appear that that's what happens here. That these massive superstorms that are occurring all over the earth are triggering these geological um, earthquake as well, and while the Bible doesn't tell it, we're going to go right into we're not actually going to go right into the trumpets this morning because I can't even do thirteen verses on one morning apparently. But when they get ready to move, we're going to begin to see massive judgments upon the earth. It's going to tell us the effect of these massive judgments. We don't know. It doesn't tell us what happens after the seventh seal occurs. We don't, it doesn't tell us the, the devastation that occurs from these superstorms and from this earthquake. But I cannot imagine that a world that's already experienced widespread war, famine, death, and one previous massive earthquake, I can't imagine that that world is going to be well prepared for multiple hurricanes and another earthquake. And so while we don't know exactly the results, the devastating results of this opening of this seal... I can't imagine it's, it's good. I can't imagine it's not, it's not rough. Now, the reason we're not moving into verse six and the rest of the trumpets is, A, I don't have time because there's some really cool stuff there that I want to spend some time doing. We'll do that, Lord willing, next Sunday. But the Lord kind of led me to share something with you regarding this altar in heaven because it is interesting to note that the coals that cleansed Isaiah's unclean lips are the same coals which judge an unclean world. Think about it for a minute. I mean, both Isaiah and the world saw right into the throne room of heaven, right? Right before this happens. I mean, Isaiah, he sees the throne room of heaven. He sees the Lord. In the sixth seal, the sky is opened up and they see right into heaven. The same exact experience. Both Isaiah and the world saw right into the throne room of heaven and they both saw the wrath of God and trembled. Both of them did. Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone. The world hides themselves in caves and, and, and they say, fall on us, we're, we're dead men. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. But how Isaiah and the world reacted to this sight was completely opposite. Isaiah recognized and confessed his sin and he was cleansed, he was purified by those very coals. The world instead hides from the Lord, refuses to acknowledge their sin, and calls on their man, the Antichrist, to save them from God's judgment. Very different reactions, don't you think? Why is this altar in heaven so involved with how God treats those who see his heaven? Turn to Hebrews 9 with me. I think one of the reasons we don't understand God's wrath and God's judgment. It's one of the things that we struggle with the most. Is I think we don't understand the depth of what a person does when they reject the Lord. I want to read you a couple of things from Hebrews that I think might, if not give you a full vision of what it means to sin against the Lord or reject the Lord repeatedly, at least maybe it'll broaden that vision and maybe God's wrath will make a little bit more sense. In, Reve- in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, leading up to those verses, the book of Hebrews is discussing the topic of, you know, we, we have the earthly tabernacle and, and had earthly sacrifices and earthly priests. And is explaining to the the. The people that the writer of Hebrews is, is talking to is how Jesus is better. And it explains that in verse 11, but Christ, different than an earthly tabernacle and earthly sacrifices and earthly priests, but Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats or of calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. In other words, Jesus on the cross, he obtained eternal redemption for us. All the work necessary for our forgiveness was accomplished there. But he did something else. He took that blood that was shed for us, that paid the price for us, and then he brought it into the heavenly uh, heavenly temple and presented it before the Lord. Look here at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. It says it was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these. In other words, the earthly things. We we needed to have an earthly priest. We needed to have an earthly tabernacle. We needed animal sacrifices. Why? It was necessary that that when before Christ came, that there could be something that would accomplish some type of cleansing for us before Christ came. But it mentions the heavenly things, verse 23 of Hebrews 9, the heavenly things, the actual temple, the real one, not the pattern, themselves, they had to be purified with better sacrifices than those. The blood of goats and, and of bulls and of animal sacrifices, they could not do the job. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. In other words, as our high priest, he doesn't enter into the, the earthly tabernacle which are the figures, the the copies, the patterns of the true temple. But he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In other words, he died for us on the cross, but now he's going to do something else for us in heaven. Verse 25, Not yet that he should offer himself often, like the high priest who entered into the holy place here on earth, entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others, no, 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 that's not what he did. He, it's not like he just kind of did that year's day of atonement, but he did it in heaven. No, no, no. For then he must have been offered, he would need to have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the age, he has appeared to put away, to absolutely do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Of himself. And as it is appointed unto a man once to die, but after this is a judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he be, appear the second time without sin unto salvation. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he made it clear that the work required for our forgiveness was accomplished on the cross. But forgiveness is not the only aspect of our salvation. Jesus is not just our sacrifice, he's also the high priest. He's the one who brings the sacrifice. And so while the cross was his completed offering, his completed sacrifice for our forgiveness, his work as high priest, the Bible actually tells us, continues to this day. That he he ever lives to intercede for us. He's still doing that work as our high priest. But that work as high priest was initiated when he offered his blood on that altar in heaven. Why am I bringing this up? Because to turn away from that altar and to cover your sin when you can see into heaven and know what Christ did for you, that he didn't just die for you because Jesus could have died for us and he could have told the Father, I did everything you told me to do and I don't want to save any of these people. I don't want to do this for them. They don't deserve it. But instead, he didn't just leave his blood there at the cross, but he took it up as our great high priest and he carried it before the altar in heaven and he said to his father, I am here in their place. I made the offering for them and now I present that offering to you and I plead with you, Father, based on what I did and what you see here on the altar. Forgive them in my name. Receive them in my name. Make them righteous in my name. Make them your child in my name. That's why the Bible says that he is our great high priest. That there is one mediator between God and man and it is the man Christ Jesus. To reject both of those things, the cross and his work as high priest, that that is not something that can just be ignored. That is a well, turn to Hebrews 10.29 29, because this it explains it right here. In verse twenty-eight, he tells us that there is a general judgment for sin. Okay? He tells us that. He that despised Moses' law, he died without mercy under two or three witnesses. I mean, it, it just happened, you know? The whole like Achan situation, right? You know, like Achan's not even necessarily an unbeliever. I'm not saying he, he's a believer. I'm just saying we don't know where he's at with the Lord. But but there's not this like, massive like, wrath of God in that situation. It was just justice. But look at what verse 29 says. Of how much sorer punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy? And, and look at this. Note this. There's two things that they do that they're therefore worthy of punishment. Who has trodden underfoot the Son of God. That's referring to the cross. And then secondly, has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing the offering that Jesus presented on the altar in heaven. Of how much sore punishment do you suppose the person that does that, that they'll be under? That is where the next verses come in. Vengeance belongs unto me, I will repay, says the Lord. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is another incremental step toward blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It is that next big step that someone takes to say, I don't care. I don't want your heaven, God. I don't want what you have for me. I don't want to live your way. I don't want any of it. What else can God do at that moment? He only has two options. Let them continue to sin and hurt everybody around him. Let the world continue to go on in unrighteousness and be a mess where Jesus said, if he didn't return, we'd wipe ourselves out or deal with them in wrath. It's the only two options available. You might be saying, Pastor Ro, this message on wrath is horrible news. Revelation is rough stuff. It is. But here's the good news. Because they have not yet blasphemed the Holy Spirit despite all their stubbornness. <laughs> Talk about the mercy and the patience of God. Because they have not yet blasphemed the Holy Spirit the purpose of this seventh sealed judgment is still to call them to repentance. It's still to say, come home, come back, turn from your sin. It is the call to the world to stand in awe so they don't have to experience these awful judgments that are coming. And here's the really cool news. Some will respond to God's judgment here with repentance. There will be more who get saved. Now, many will not And they will eventually progress to that final step of blaspheming the Holy Spirit when they take the mark of the beast. When the angel flies around all of the earth and says, if you take the mark of the beast, you forfeit all opportunities for heaven. There are no opportunities after that point in time to make a choice. The time to decide is done, it's finished. You either choose Jesus or you take the mark. No confusion, no wondering where you have have made your choice or where you stand. Some will finally progress to that step. And that is why the writer of Hebrews warns those Christians in there of the foolishness of abandoning Christ. You know, their whole concern is is that we don't think Jesus is worth it. This is hard being a Christian. It's it's hard loving our enemies. It's hard not retaliating. It's hard, you know, experiencing persecution. Maybe we'll go back to the old sacrificial system. Maybe we'll go back to the law. And the writer of the Hebrews says, Where else are you going to go? Where is any hope in that? And thus we get the great exhortations of Hebrews 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, those verses that many of us are probably familiar with, it says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, because of what he did on that altar, because of what he did on the cross, we can go right into the throne room of God without any fear, By a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, what should we do? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Why? Because our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. We have been cleansed. We have been washed. We have been forgiven. We have new life. And instead of drawing away or giving up, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering because he is faithful who promised. He will come back. He will right every wrong. He will bring justice. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Don't discourage each other. Don't give up on each other. Love one another encourage each other, challenge each other until I come back. Guys, we have experienced great news, have we not? We can be as close to the Lord as we want to be. So let's draw near, right? In Hebrews 10, 32, right after he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, he says, but that's not... that's not what's in store for you. That's not what I have a hope for you. And he tells them, but call to remembrance the former days when you first got saved, he says, in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. You struggled with persecution, hard times, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. He says, you joined a club when you got saved. It wasn't the club of the rich and the famous. It was the club of the persecuted and the oppressed. And you experienced it too. For he says, you had compassion on me and my chains, my bonds when I was in jail, in prison for Jesus. And you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. You didn't care that they took your possessions, they took your property, they took away your rights because you had Jesus knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance, one that can never be taken from you. So therefore, he says, do not cast away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. He says, for you have need of endurance, of patience, that after have you have done the will of God, you've already received Christ, that you might actually receive the promise. So as we're about to take the Lord's Supper this morning, here's my encouragement to you. Let's recommit ourselves to enduring, amen? let's let's recommit ourselves to drawing near to the Lord to walking worthy of our calling to remembering both the sacrifice and the offering that Jesus made for us so as a team comes forward and is going to lead us in song if you're here today and you don't know the don't know the Lord listen the cross truly is the crossroad of eternity it is And if you've never repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your your Savior, make that choice now. Make that choice this morning, because tomorrow's not promised to you, and, and there is nothing that waits you if you don't repent of your sins and receive Christ, except this wrath, a wrath that God does not want for you, for He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. If you're a believer this morning, as we sing this song, this is time to fellowship with the Lord. That's what the disciples did when they had that last supper with Jesus. They were there sitting with him, fellowshipping with him, asking him questions. And maybe there are things in your heart this morning. Maybe there are things that need to be recommitted. Maybe there, there, are, there, are, there are things we've discussed this morning. You say, I want to I recommit that to the Lord. Do that as we sing. And then we'll partake of the elements together after some quiet moments with the Lord. So Lord, we give this moment to you now to celebrate and remember what you did for us and Lord, to recommit ourselves to you, to declare that you have died for us, we are yours. We love you and we thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.